Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac Wayne heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play, and boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured, it was green and good! The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. If you get a custom-tailored suit, it's going to fit perfectly and make you look great. Think about that with a Noble First for your organization. No matter what the size of your company is, a Noble First will analyze your data and collaborate with you to custom-tailor digital solutions so you can focus on making your organization grow. When it comes to data-centric solutions specifically for your organization, choose a Noble First. A Noble First makes living simple. See for yourself at anoblefirst.com, E-N-N-O-B-L-E-First.com. Men perpetually conceive themselves as crystallite heroes and wonder workers, and under strain of vocation, this element crops out in their actions, making them do all manner of curious things, which the standard setters of realism will declare utterly illogical and impossible. Often it is the commonest man who do them. I have a fondness for realism myself. At least I have a very wicked feeling towards what is called symbolism and various other things which I don't understand. But as the unrealists, the exaggeratists, the whatever you call them express what I believe to be a very permanent characteristic of humankind, as evidenced in all the traces of its work, I think they probably give quite as true reflections of man's soul as the present favorites. These early literatures, most of which have, of course, been lost, were the embryos of our more imposing creations, and it is a pleasant and an instructive thing to follow the unfolding of monster tales into great religious literatures, to compare them and see how the same few simple figures, either transplanted or spontaneously produced at different points, evolved into all manner of creators, redeemers and miracles in their various altered habits. No one can so thoroughly appreciate what is in the face of a man turned upward in prayer, as who has followed the evolution of black monster up to that personal conception of God, prettily called by Quakers, the inner light. Fairy tales, on the other hand, have evolved into allegories and dramas. First the dramas of the sky, now the dramas of the earth. Tales of sexual exploits have become novels, novelettes, short stories and sketches, a many expression and countenance of man. The old heroic legend and the hero is always the next born, after the monster in the far back drawn days, is the linear progenitor of history. History which was first the glorification of a warrior and his aides, then the story of kings, courts, and intrigues, now mostly the report of the deeds of nations, in their ugly moments, and to become the record of what people have done in their more amiable moments. The record of the conquests of peace, how men have lived and labored, dug and built, hewn and cleared, gardened and reforested, organized and cooperated, manufactured and used, educated and amused themselves. Those of us who aspire to become more or less suggestors of social chance are greatly at a loss. If we do not know the face of man as reflected in history, and I mean as much the reflection of the minds of historians as seen in their histories as the reflection of the minds of others they sought to give, not so much in the direct expression of their opinions either, as in the choice of what they thought it worth while to try to stamp perpetuity upon. When we read in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle these items which are characteristic of the whole, 80, 
611. This year, Sigenal succeeded to the government in Wessex, and held it thirteen winters. Sigenal's was the son of Saol, Saol of Cutha, Cutha of Simric, and then. 614. This year, Sigenal's and Kiholm fought at Bampton and slew 2046 of the Welsh. And then. 678. This year appeared the comet star in August, and shone every morning during three months like a sunbeam. Bishop Wilfred, being driven from his bishopric by King Everth, two bishops were consecrated in his stead. When we read these, we have not any very adequate conception of what the Anglo-Saxon people were doing, but we have a very striking and lasting impression of what the only men who tried to write history at all in that period of English existence thought it was worthwhile to read. Sigenols was the son of Sable, and he of Cutha, and Cutha, a Simric. It reads considerably like a stock-raiser's pedigree book. The trouble is, we have no particular notion of Simric. Probably, if we went back, we should find he was the son of somebody. But at any rate, he had a grandson, and the grandson was a king, and the chronicler therefore recorded him. Nothing happened for three years, and then the chronicle records that two kings fought and slew 2,046 men. Then comes the momentous year, 678, when a comet appeared and a bishop lost his job. No doubt the comet foretold the loss. There are no records of when shoemakers lost their jobs that I know of, nor how many shoemakers were put in their places. And I imagine it would have been at least as interesting for us to know as the little matter of Bishop Wilfred, but the chronicler did not think so. He preserved the bishop's troubles. No doubt he did just what the shoemakers at the time would also have done, providing they had also been chroniclers. It is a fair sample of what was in men's minds as important. If anyone fancies that this disposition was quite vanished, let him pick up any ordinary history, and see how many pages, relatively, are devoted to the doings of persons intent on slaying, and those intent on peaceful occupation, and how many times we are told that certain politicians lost their jobs, and how we are not told anything about the ordinary people losing their jobs, and then reflect whether the old face of man the historian is quite another face yet. Biography, as a sort of second offspring of the hero legend, is another revelation. When we read it, not only to know its subject, but to know its writer, the standpoint from which he values another man's life. Ordinarily, there's a great deal of Senegal's the son of Kutha, the son of Simric, in it, and a great deal of emphasis upon the man as an individual phenomenon, when really he would be more interesting and more comprehensible left in connection with the series of phenomena of which he was part. As an example of what to me is a perfect biography, I instance Conway's life of Thomas Paine, itself a valuable history, but it is not so correct a mirror of the general attitude of biographers and readers of biography as Bosworth's life of Johnson except in so far as it indicates that the great face in the glass is changing. It is rather the type of what biography is becoming than what it has been or is. There are two divisions of literature which are generally named in one breath, and are certainly closely connected, and yet the one came to highly perfected forms long, long ago, while the other is properly speaking very young. And for all that, the older is the handmaid of the younger, I mean the literatures of philosophy and science. Philosophy is simply the coordination of the sciences, the formulation of the general, and related principles deduced from the collection or orderly arrangement of the fact's existence. Yet man had rich literatures of philosophy, while his knowledge of facts was yet so extreme limited as hardly to be worth writing a book about. None of the appearances of the man's soul is more interesting 
that reflected in the continuous succession of philosophies he has poured out. Let him who reads them, read them always twice, first simply to know and grasp what is said, to become familiar with the idea, as it has formed itself in the minds of those who conceived it, second for the sake of figuring out restless activity of brain, the positive need of the mind under all conditions to formulate what knowledge it has, or thinks it has, into some sort of connected whole. This is one of the most pronounced and permanent features seen in the mirror, the positive refusal of the mind to accept the isolation of existences. No matter how far apart they lie, man proceeds to spin connecting threads somehow. The woven texture is often comical enough, but the weaver is just as positively revealed in the cobwebs of ancient philosophy as in the reasoning Herbert Spencer. Concerning the literature of science itself, in strict terms, I should be very presumptuous to speak of it, because I know extremely little about it. But of those general popularizations of it, which we have seen in some of the works of Hegel, Darwin, and their similars, I should say that beyond the important information they contain in themselves, which surely no one can afford to be in ignorance of, they present the most transformed reflection of man which any literature gives. Their words are cold, colorless, burdened with the labor of exactness, machine-like, sustained, uncompromising, careless of effect. The spirit they embody is like unto them. They offer the image of man's soul in the time, while imagination is an abeyance, reason ascendant. This coldness and quietness sound the doom of poetry. A people which shall be fully permeated with the spirit and word of science will never conceive great poems. They will never be overcome long enough at a time by their wonder and admiration, by their primitive impulses, by their power of simple impression to think or to speak poetically. They will never see trees as impaled giants any more. They will see them as evolved descendants of phytoplasm. Dewdrops are no more than the jewels of the fairies. They are the produce of condensation under given atmospheric conditions. Singing stones are not the prisons of punished spirits, but problems in the acoustics. The basins of fords are not the track of the anger of Thor, but the pathways of glaciation. The roar and blaze and vomit of Edna are not the rebellion of Titan, but the explosion of so and so many million cubic feet of gas. The comet shall no more be the herald of the wrath of heaven. It is a nebulous body revolving in elliptical orbit of great elongation. Love, love, love will not be the wound of Cupid, but the manifestation of universal reproductive instincts. No, the great poems of the world have been produced. They have sung their song and gone their way. Imagination remains to us, but we can mixed, tamed, and calmed. Verses we shall have, and many fragments.